All right, good. Well, good morning, folk. It is great to have uh, all of you out today, and I counted a privilege to be back here. I was talking to some of the folk that uh, I was on staff at Calvary Baptist Church in the 90s and went away and came back about eight years ago. But in 1992 to 1996, uh, I was on staff, and uh, the pastor at that time here was a man by the name of Larry Ball. I'm certain many of you know him. And uh, when he would go on vacation, there were a couple occasions for me to come over here. So it's been like 30 years since I've been here. And you know how your memory, you have things in your mind, but it looks completely different than what I had in my mind. Of course, I know you've done a, a sanctuary remodel and things of that nature, but it is just a privilege to be back here today and excited to see all you folk. And um, we're thankful that, uh, to have you folk here in Hollister. We're praying for you and asking God to give you your next pastor. And so I know that God, the, the Lord will build, Jesus said, I will build my church. And so we know that he'll do that. And so uh, I'm going to get right into it this morning. I invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you would, would you stand with me as we read the word of God, and if you're physically able to. And uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, my text is going to be in verses 7 through 10. But to kind of give a little bit of a context... I want to start reading in verse 1. So 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And the Apostle Paul writes, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man... Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. So Paul begins by elucidating about this individual. He speaks of him in the third person like Paul doesn't, just knows this guy. We're going to see in a few moments Paul's talking about himself. But someone who was called up into heaven that had visions of heaven that nobody else had witnessed before. So verse 4, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth, but I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me or, or to be or hears of me. And now here's where it becomes clear that he's the one that had these visions. Verse 7, and this begins our text. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray and ask God to bless. Father in heaven, I pray now that as we begin to approach this text, I enlist your help, specifically the aid of the Holy Spirit of God that would illumine this text, help us to understand this text, help us to see the magnificent truths that are here, Help us to assimilate these into our heart and be blessed and encouraged by the truth that you have for us. 
We pray, Lord, that Christ is exalted and that you receive all the glory for this. And we commit this unto you now in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. Thank you. I'm not certain how familiar you are with uh, what's often referred to as the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Many of you, no doubt, have heard that term. It's usually connected with folk that uh, preach the type of gospel that, that, that try to fleece the flock, so to speak. It's the type of gospel that makes you believe that if you live a certain way and you do X, Y, and Z, God is going to bless you in such a way that you, so that you always have a great health, great wealth, prosperity. There'll be plenty of money in the bank. A thousand-fold return, just sow a little bit of seed. No doubt you've heard preachers like that. And hopefully you understand that that is a false gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. But there is a sense in which many of us, even as Bible-believing Baptists, there's an element of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that I believe has seduced many of us. And that is the idea that if we, in fact, live according to the precepts of God's word, I will bless you if you obey me, I will curse you if you don't. An Old Testament principle. And there is an element of truth to that. Yet, nevertheless, one of the things that, the, that, makes it, that life makes very clear, I know of people, and perhaps there's someone in here today, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you seek to live for the Lord and obey the Lord, and yet there are times where God doesn't, where it doesn't seemingly your life is as blessed as it should be. And so, as we look at our text today, no one illustrates this more than the Apostle Paul. Paul, as a follower of Christ, shows this reality that many who are even followers of Jesus Christ are not immune to the experience of pain and suffering that comes as a result of living in a sin-cursed world. Bad things happen to good people even followers of Jesus Christ, because, again, we live in a fallen world. Now, how Paul handled this suffering that came into his life, that is what is so instructive for us from this particular text today. Paul suffered both physically and spiritually as a result of being a follower of Jesus Christ. From the experience of Paul's suffering emerged some reasons that the Lord may lead us to know suffering as a follower in our own lives. This passage is one that you have likely read before, one that maybe you've studied before, but it's one of the most autobiographical accounts. Of course, 2 Corinthians, actually, of all Paul's writings, 2 Corinthians is the most autobiographical of all his writings. But Paul talks about here, about the spiritual and suffering that came into his life as a result of what he referred to as a thorn in the flesh. i got to learn how to use this thing real quick. Let me go back here. There we go. Paul's thorn in the flesh. So this is, I, we use one of these at my church. This one's very more sensitive than mine. All right, now, Paul didn't specifically identify what this thorn was. There's a lot of ink that's been spilled trying to figure out what Paul's thorn in the flesh is. And I'm not interested in, in doing that this morning. All we know is that he asked the Lord to remove this because he felt that he was not able to be able to do ministry effectively when plagued by this thorn. Now, what must have seemed like a disappointment to Paul, God answers Paul's request when he prays for the removal of this thing. Now, remember, this is a man who has seen miraculous healings. 
He's seen people raised from the dead. He no doubt knows that God is able to remove this thorn. He has but to speak a word. And so he asks God to do this, and God says no. And as it turns out, the Lord had a higher goal for Paul. Paul wanted to use, a Paul, or God wanted to use Paul's suffering to display his grace. And therein lies the, the lesson for us this morning. Our text teaches this powerful truth. If you get nothing else this morning, here's what I want you to get. Suffering, both spiritually and physically, is allowed by God so that Christ's power can be displayed through our weakness. And so let me begin by considering what our text states. And the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the reasons for Paul's suffering. Now, our text in verse 7 indicates two reasons behind the suffering that, uh, the, uh, that, that Paul experienced. The first thing that we, is, that we see is that Satan wanted to harass Paul. Look at verse 7 again. Lest I should be exalted above measure... By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, and now here it is, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now that's very insightful as it pulls back the, the curtain on, on the unseen spiritual realm, and it reveals that Satan is sometimes allowed by God to harass Christians. Now if you've ever read the story of Job, you know that that's true. Job chapters 1 and 2 make it very clear that Satan can do nothing, though, apart from God's permission. Evidently, God gave Satan an open door to afflict Paul physically with this thorn in the flesh. And so Paul speaks of it as if he's been buffeted. The Greek word translated buffet has two primary meanings. It means to strike with the fist or to harass or to torment. And uh, most likely both of these are somewhat in view here. But if you recall from the book of Job, Satan harassed, he buffeted, he tormented Job in a variety of ways, and his goal was to get Job to curse God and die. And when Satan failed in the first attempt to do this, he goes before the Lord and he seeks permission to afflict Job personally. And that's where we learn in Job chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, and the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Now, this is where we learn that Satan can do nothing to us apart from God's permission. And that's very important for us to know and understand. Because once we see that, then we realize everything that's happening in our life has first been filtered through the sovereign hand of God. It's occurring for a reason. And so Satan sends some demonic messenger to harass Paul by means of this thorn in the flesh, which is likely resulted in some form of physical suffering and pain. Again, Paul doesn't reveal what this thorn in the flesh is, but it brought some kind of constant pain, some kind of irritation, similar to that of a thorn embedded in the flesh. And Satan's efforts, no doubt, is intended to discourage Joe, or, uh, Paul just like he wanted to discourage Job. He wants to get, to get Paul to the point where he gets exasperated about why this is happening in his life and maybe even quit ministry. So our text, though, reveals not only that Satan wanted to harass Paul, but there's a second reason. God wanted to humble Paul. Again, look at verse 7. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations of the thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan above me. And he says it again, lest I should be exalted above measure. 
So Paul sees what Satan is trying to do. Satan is buffeting him. But Paul also alludes to something that God is trying to do. He says, lest I should be exalted above measure, lest I become too proud. Paul describes in the first four verses of chapter 12, that's why I had us read that so we have a context of this individual that witnessed all, the, that had these abundant heavenly revelations. Now, let me ask you this. If you had been privileged to witness heavenly revelations that nobody else had been able to witness before, do you not think that you might be tempted to be a little bit prideful? Hey, did you have, can I tell you what God did for me? Has he ever done anything like that for you? Oh, I must be special because God has allowed me to have this revelation. Now, Paul was a great Christian, but he still had areas in his life, even as a believer, that he needed to grow in his sanctification. He needed to grow in his Christ-like character. There were some rough edges that God needed to work out of Paul, and evidently, pride was one of those things. And we all know how uh, the Bible talks about pride being a dangerous thing. In Proverbs uh, Proverbs 11, verse 2, when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. In Proverbs 29 and verse 23, a man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. So this reminds us that God has a higher goal for the Christian. When a person comes to faith in Christ, we are forgiven of all of our sins. However, even as Christians, we are still going to continue to sin. And at salvation, God begins a work in each and every one of us called sanctification. It's progressive. And this is something that's ongoing till we reach what's called glorification, where we're in the presence of the Lord and we're stripped away of this fleshly bodies and we will see Jesus as he is and we will become like him. We'll be perfect like him at that time. But until then, God is at work sanctifying us and he's doing a work and he's looking, trying to do this, transforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul still had this work to be done in him. And pride is not like Christ. And so God allowed Satan to harass Paul for the ultimate purpose of, uh, or, uh, of humbling Paul, but then God was, or to hurt Paul, but then God was at work also through this to try to humble Paul. So there we see the reasons for Paul's suffering. The second thing that I want us to see this morning is the request amid Paul's suffering in verse 8. And from our text... Notice Paul's appeal to the Lord in verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. So God uses suffering to draw believers to himself. Harassed and tormented by this physical pain, Paul humbles himself and he does what many of us would do. He comes before the Lord in prayer and he asks the Lord for help. David wrote in Psalm 18 and verse 6, In my distress, I called upon the Lord, I cried out to my God. The psalmist Asaph writes in Psalm 77 verse 2, In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. And Paul writes that he pleaded with the Lord. That word pleaded is the same word that's used in many of the gospel accounts uh, by those appealing to Jesus for healing when he was in the midst of his earthly ministry. In fact, in some of those cases, the, the same Greek word translated pleaded is translated beg. For example, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jairus came to Jesus asking Jesus to heal his daughter, in Mark chapter 5 and verse 23, it says, 
and he begged him earnestly. That's the same Greek word that's translated pleaded, saying, my little daughter lies at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her that she may be healed and she will live. So Paul makes it a point to demonstrate he's persistent in this. He pleaded, he begged on the, with the Lord on three different occasions to remove this thorn, to remove this pain, to remove this suffering. Now keep in mind, Paul knows, and we know, God has the power to do this, but then that leads us to the next thing that we see here, is that is the, Paul's answer from the Lord. In verse 9, it says, He said to me, this is the Lord speaking now, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, notice the word, no, I'm not going to heal you, does not occur in the passage, but obviously that's what's inferred. Paul 3 appeals to the Lord to take away the pain and the suffering were answered by the Lord, but not in a way that, that Paul was hoping. I've heard it said that God answers prayer in three different ways. Sometimes God says yes, sometimes God says no, and sometimes God says, I have a better plan. And that's what it seems to be happening here. As we've seen, God wanted to humble Paul. It may appear that he, he kept Paul that way. And the Lord's answer to Paul is very simple. I'm not going to grant you the relief that you're requesting, Paul. So you might as well quit praying. I've heard your three prayers. The answer is going to be no, but I am going to do something for you. I do have this better plan. And this better plan involves bringing you grace. Now that brings us then to the third main point that I want to share this morning. And this is really the, uh, the focus of the passage. And this is the resource for Paul's suffering in verses 9 and 10. And from these verses, this is where we learn about the endowment of grace for Paul. Again, look at verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. That word grace it appears 155 times in the New Testament. It comes from the Greek word charis. And it, it, and it means, it means a favor. It means blessing or kindness. God is the giver of grace. It is from God that all grace flows. And for this reason, Paul begins uh, this particular letter and many of his letters like this. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way... It is only by God's grace that any of us can be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I'm, this is my first time here in over 30 years at Calvary Baptist Church uh, of Hollister. And I'm assuming that many of you here have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in case there's somebody here that does not, you need to know today that there's not a thing that you can do to earn your way to, into heaven. Had you asked me when I was a teenager, uh, Michael, how would you get to heaven? I would have said, well, I, I have to be a good person, and I have to do these things. I was raised in a system of religion that taught me a list of sacraments and some things to do. And as long as I crossed all the I's, or dotted all, crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, then when I came to the end of my days, if I fulfilled all these things, I'd be able to get into heaven by my works. But then one day I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and it taught me that there's not a work that I can do. That all my sin had been poured out, all the wrath for my sin that God has had been poured out upon Jesus upon the cross at Calvary. 
and that there's not a thing I could do to earn my salvation, but simply I needed to repent of my sinfulness and turn to and embrace the free gift of salvation that was being offered by God through Christ on his, by his death upon the cross. And if you're here today and you're under any illusion that somehow you being a good person can earn your way into heaven, please hear me this morning. Look at this verse again. For by grace are we saved through faith and not of yourselves. If you could get your own salvation, why did Jesus have to die? And so it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If today you'll humble yourself and you'll admit that you're a sinner and that you have no hope of heaven by your own good works, but recognize that Jesus' death upon the cross has already paid the penalty for your sin and you'll call upon him, you can have salvation today. That is how we're saved. It is by God's grace. But God does not just offer saving grace. God also offers grace to Paul in the same way that enables him now to endure living every day being tormented by this thorn in the flesh. In other words, God was going to give Paul daily help and strength. Just like we need help and strength to get to heaven through the merits of Jesus Christ, we also need God's grace, his daily help and strength, to make it through life in this sin-cursed world. And Paul needed to learn that. I want to ask you something this morning. Has there been some kind of harassing problem, some kind of thing that's tormented you, and you've asked and you've begged and you've pleaded and, and prayed, God, would you please change this situation? God, would you please remove this? Well, let me ask you this. What if God has ordained for your life, like he did for Paul, that his better plan is to let you keep enduring this, and he's never going to take it away, the circumstance is never going to change, and rather what he wants you to do is learn to humbly depend upon his grace every single day. What if Jesus' plan for you as a follower of Christ is to daily depend upon his grace? Here's some reasons that that can be actually a good thing for you and for me. Number one, the grace of God proves sufficient for Paul. Look at verse 9 again. My grace is sufficient for you. That word sufficient means literally enough to satisfy. It doesn't mean you have what you want. Paul wanted a complete removal of the thorn. God's plan, however, was for Paul to be given sufficient grace to be able to endure the thorn. Sufficient means enough for each day. Enough is available for each day. So day one, Paul, he finds out, I'm not going to have this. So God, I need this grace. Day two comes, God, I need some more of this grace. And that's how he's going to have to live the rest of his life. Because as far as we know, Paul lived the rest of his days with this harassing problem. God never did take that away. And so the writer of Hebrews points out, though, that God's supply of grace is available for us every single day. God's grace is sufficient for every need. And so we're, we're implored, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. James tells us that the only hindrance to acquiring this grace you need is by being too proud to ask for it. James 4 and verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so at the end of the day, Paul found this grace from God was enough. Number two, the grace of God provided strength for Paul. Look again at verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength 
is made perfect in weakness. Now, many of you likely have what's called a red-letter edition of the Bible. If not, I've put it up on this graphic. Notice that when he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, those, those words are in red if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible. Those are indicating those words are the words of Christ. Then with therefore, Paul is writing again. Most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, here's what I want you to see. You need to get this, friends. When Jesus speaks of grace, he defines it like this, my strength. When Paul speaks of grace, he defines it as the power of Christ upon me, the power of Christ resting upon me. That's very instructive. So that word translated power, it's the word dunamis. Um, it's the same Greek word that's used to refer to the power of God when God would work miracles. For example, in Luke 5 and verse 17, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. There's the dunamis, the power of the Lord. He could have healed. But instead of healing, he uses this power, this dunamis, in a different way. He uses it to give God or give Paul the enablement, the strength that he needs to bear up under and endure this. And so you have the Lord's divine power being utilized in Paul's life to strengthen him in this time of weakness. There we have the endowment of grace for Paul. Now that leads us to the effect of grace upon Paul in verse 10. The effect of grace upon Paul is twice indicated. He says, therefore most gladly, I will rather boast my infirmities, he says in verse 9, and in verse 10, therefore I take pleasure in infirmities. So it's important to understand this. Paul's circumstances has not changed. What has changed is his attitude about the circumstance. Paul now viewed this thorn in the flesh, this daily dependence upon the need for grace as God's new leading for his life, as God's new will for his life. And so the word pleasure means to be well pleased, to think good of. So Paul no longer saw this thorn in the flesh as something bad. Now he views it from a whole different perspective. He views this as something good. Paul was content even while suffering because he knew God was using this to display his grace, his perfect power in the life of Paul. And this was all working together for the good. This was humbling Paul and maturing Paul as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues on. He goes on to say this in verse 10. Number one, he says, I took pleasure in infirmities. Therefore, I take pleasure in these infirmities. That word infirmities, it's from a word that means to be sick or to be weak. It just talks about all manner of bodily weakness. It's kind of a catch-all term. It refers not just to physical illness. It can refer to mental illness, economic problems in your life, relational problems, and essentially, Anything that comes into your life where it makes you say, man, I, I just don't feel good. I feel bad that this has happened. And so what's important to note here is that regardless of the infirmity, Paul says it can be a good thing because it becomes this occasion for him to experience the grace of God. The power of God can be manifest in your weakness. That's why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. So Paul took pleasure in infirmities. 
And then Paul took pleasure in reproaches. Reproaches means, uh, is from a word that means insolence or injurious treatment. It, it can take the form of being railed against verbally. Uh, most often that's how it is. It can involve physical attacks, but there's some manner of injurious treatment. We know that Paul experienced that. Paul took pleasure in times of need. Necessities is, is translated from a word that means literally a compelling force as opposed to willingness. Has there ever been a time where a situation comes in your life and you have your plans and all of a sudden because of this event, it necessitates you changing your plans. You're forced to change your plans. That's what this, that's what this word means. And so sometimes these needs are, are, are plans that fail. It forces us to take a different path than what we hoped. It could be a fortune or misfortune that comes upon you in the form of a health crisis. Could be a financial crisis. Some event that you never saw coming, but God did because God's sovereign. He already knows the beginning and the end of a thing. And even if you did not like, even if you didn't see this coming, the Lord did. And like the thorn in the flesh, God has permitted it. And the question is, do you like Paul look to the Lord for grace and even look to this as an opportunity to experience his power afresh and anew in your life? Or do you get mad, upset, angry? Oh man, I had plans to do, and now my plans are busted. Ugh. But what if God wants to teach you something through that? What if God wants to show his grace in your life through that? Number four, Paul took pleasure in persecutions. We all know what persecution is, the verbal, physical attacks that sometimes that we are called upon to endure for our faith. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, yea, yea, and all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Thankfully, the climate in America is one where we do not really have to experience much persecution, if any, but that's not the way it is in many parts of the world. What's interesting, I read an article just a couple of months ago. Here's some stats. Where it's hardest to follow Jesus, North Korea, Somalia, Yemen, Eritrea, Libya, Nigeria, Pakistan, Iran, Afghanistan, Sudan, India. Other stats, this happened last year. Over 5,600 people martyred. Over 124,000 forced to leave their homes and go into hiding for their faith in Jesus. Over 29,000 Christians physically or mentally abused for faith-related reasons. 2,100 churches attacked. 4,500 Christians' homes attacked. Stats go on and on and on. The point is, Paul did not rejoice in the persecution that he faced. If you know anything about the life of Paul, he was greatly persecuted. Many times he was beaten in prison for his faith. What Paul is alluding to here is his attitude toward these events. Now when these things happen, he saw this as an opportunity for God to pour into his life this grace. God to give him this, this blessed help that he needs. And then that means, last of all, Paul took pleasure in these distresses. That word distresses, it's interesting. It's from a Greek word that translates literally narrowness of room. I don't know if anybody here is claustrophobia or has claustrophobia, but if you have you fear of tight spaces, well, that's somewhat similar to what this room or what this word means when it talks about distresses. The idea is you feel pressured on all sides. You feel hemmed in and now you get all panicky and you just want to go, what am I going to do? 
I want to escape. The question is, how will you escape? See, there's all kinds of ways that people try to escape these, these, these distresses. Some people escape in mindless hours of entertainment. Some people escape to drugs and alcohol. Some people escape to food. Some people escape to illicit uh, sexual activity, all sorts of things that they can do. In the most extreme cases, people escape through death. They just try to get out of life. They can't handle it anymore. Paul, however, when faced with this pressure, something that we're all going to face, came to see and recognize this isn't happening for, for some oddball reason. God has permitted this in my life, and if God has permitted this, God's going to give me the grace to get through it. So having the right perspective on why a sovereign God would permit pain and suffering into the life of his children, this is foundational to being a follower of Jesus Christ, believing that God's obligated to remove all the difficulties of life. And this is where I say we have sometimes been seduced by the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Not to the degree that some have, but at least this. If I live a certain way, if I just obey, God, the angels are going to come, and they're going to sprinkle a little whiffle dust, and all my problems are going to go away. No, they're not. That's wrong theology. In reality, the Bible teaches very clearly through passages just like this, that God allows trials like what Paul endured for a higher purpose. We're back to the main truth I wanted to teach you this morning. Suffering, both spiritually and physically, is allowed by God so that Christ's power can be displayed through our weakness. Now with that in mind, I want to close by offering just a couple of principles for us to take with us this morning so that you can, this doesn't become just an academic exercise. How can we take and live this out? A couple principles. Number one, remember this. God tailors your trials just for you. What happened to Paul does not mean that God's going to ordain this exact circumstance for you. That being said, God does use trials tailored for you to accomplish these same goals that he was trying to accomplish in Paul's life. When you're in a dark valley, you're being afflicted, and you're facing various difficulties and trials, I hope that this truth will bring a ray of comfort from heaven. A sovereign God has designed and permitted the pain and hardship that you're facing, and he's designed this and allowed this just for you. God's not like Zeus on Mount Olympus who aimlessly and arbitrarily is throwing down lightning bolts on the unsuspecting villagers below. The Bible presents the Lord as our faithful shepherd. He leads his sheep. And as a shepherd, he knows his sheep. And so God knows your life and he knows your needs way better than you do. Psalm 139 verse 1 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. In Jeremiah 12 and verse 3, But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. You have tested my heart toward you. And the Lord skillfully directs every single event of your life, even your sufferings. He permits these afflictions because he knows every single thing about you. And he even knows those areas in your life, just like Paul, that are not yet quite as Christ-like as they need to be. And because he loves you and he has a better plan for you than a temporary earthly happiness, he permits these painful circumstances to humble you and to draw you closer to him and allow him to display his grace and power in your life just as he did in, in the life of Paul. 
Sometimes these sufferings are to discipline us and get us right back on track. But always these trials are for the purpose of maturing us and growing us spiritually. And that's a good thing. I'm assuming that if you're here today, you do want to grow spiritually. You do want to be more like Christ in your life. Listen to what James says. He says, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing in your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Two key truths come out of this. God uses trials to test our faith, to prove the reality of our faith, but then also, because false faith is not going to endure under trial, that'll, that'll fall away. But second, God uses trials to mature us spiritually. It's through these trials that we learn the character trait of patience, how to bear up under, make us stronger. It is through these things that we become uh, more mature. Number two, God's main goal is not earthly comfort, but conformity to the image of Christ. And this again speaks to this idea of the health, wealth, and prosperity thing. We don't like pain and suffering in our life. And this is where we get seduced by this idea, well, if I just live this way, God's going to bless my life, and he's going to shield my life and protect my life from all this pain. How's that working out for you? Because the pain still comes. Because we live in a world that's not the way God intended for it to be. And it's going to be that way until we're called to glory. And so one of the most difficult parts of the Christian life is the fact that becoming a follower of Jesus Christ means that we're going to still face trials and hardships and difficulties. And we see this truth from the very beginning of the church. This is a truth Paul taught the early disciples. In Acts chapter 14, there's this account of Paul being stoned in Lystra. And Paul goes to Derby, and then he returns to Lystra, the place that had stoned him and left him for dead. Imagine that, having the, the, the fortitude to go back to the very place where you had just been stoned and left for dead. And then when Paul gets back there, here's what he tells his followers. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God. No health, wealth, prosperity gospel there. Paul's just telling it like it is. And so the question is, why would a loving God allow Paul to be stoned? Why would a loving God reveal through Paul that we must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of God? Why would a good and loving God allow us to go through such things? The death of a child, disease, injury, some kind of malady that we're going to have to suffer with forever, financial hardship, worry, fear. Surely, if God loved us and he has his power, would he not take these things away? Oh, friends, one day he will. One day we'll be in glory. We'll be in a place with no more pain and no more suffering and no more sorrow and no more death. But until then, we're not living in that place. But God still makes his grace available for us. And so we know this, the ultimate good and goal. goal. Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we, we, we quote that. That's one of those bumper sticker verses that we like to call up and pull out of context and, and apply to everything. But there's a context to that verse. We know what the ultimate good is. 
For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And this is the goal of the Christian life and everything in life. All the trials and tribulations. Trials and tribulations are designed to enable us to reach that goal. It's part of the process of our sanctification, being set apart for God's purposes and fitted to live for his glory. And so, just as we learned from James, trials develop godly character. Paul revealed this also through the church at Rome. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So if you can learn to let your view of trials and suffering be shaped by what the Bible says, while also remembering that these times of suffering become an occasion to experience God's grace, the, the power of Christ in your life, that's a good thing. That then becomes an occasion to experience joy. And so trials and tribulations come with not just a purpose, being conformed to the image of Christ, but they come with a reward. James says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So whatever you're facing, whatever loss you've endured, whatever sickness or hurt or pain the Lord has led you to know, he has done this in a way that has been tailored just for you, and he's done this in a way that's designed to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And so regardless of what you're facing, focus not on the suffering, focus on the goal, which is a divine enablement of God's grace to display Christ-like character amid your difficulties. So what can we do in those things? We can pray a prayer just like this. Lord, endow me with your grace to display your power when I am weak and your character in times of suffering. So that, like Paul, when people see me in my thorn in the flesh, they can see my joy, they can see my, how content I am in this, and you receive the glory, the honor, and the praise for it all. This then becomes a reason to rejoice, as well as the hope of future reward. May each of us be as Paul. And rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that God is there with us, manifesting his grace, the power of Christ in us.